And we're picking up in chapter 9, verse 18, and going through to chapter 10 and verse 4. So I'll just read through um, that whole section, and then uh, we'll pray, and then we'll study. (coughs) For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. (coughs) Though the wrath of Yahweh of hosts, oh sorry, through the wrath of Yahweh of hosts, the land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but are still hungry. They devour on the left, but they are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, the writers who keep writing oppression, to turn aside the needy from justice, to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil, that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help and where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Let's pray. Father, as we come again to your word, Lord, I pray that you would bless us. Bless those who have come out, those who are here later, Lord, and may your word in its richness, in its power, may it transform us, we pray. May we see you evermore. <coughs> and as we saw this morning, Lord, may our lips praise, praise you, seeing who you are, ever more richly. Amen. Amen. Okay, so Isaiah 9. Um, context, context, context. We just need to make sure we're, we all know where we're at. This whole section that we've been dealing with um, as we come into uh, chapter 9 was set up for us by chapter 8. We are um, told at the end of chapter 8, chapter 8, verse 18, that Isaiah's name and the names of his children are going to be signs to Israel. And this whole section has been uh, an outworking of the name of the younger of his sons, Meher Shalal Hashbaz, means hasten, uh, speed the spoil and hasten the prey. And just so we understand what that's referring to, um, I think sometimes you know, we need to be reminded of these things. If you look at chapter 8 and verse 3, let's have a look again at this. And I went to the prophetess, that's probably best understood as Mrs. Prophet, it's just simply his wife, Uh, and she conceived and bore a son, and then Yahweh said to me, call his name Meher Shalal Hashbaz, again means speed the spoil, hasten the prey, for, this is why, before the boy knows how to cry my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Just a reminder 
Judah was under threat from the combined forces of Syria and Israel, the northern kingdom. And the younger son is a sign to Israel that before he is born, uh, sorry, once he's born, he's a sign that before he's able to say, my father, my mother, so in a very short space of time, remember in Hebrew, as I said at the time, my mother, my father are very basic sounds like mama, dada, just very, very basic. Uh, first words, before he utters his first words, the wealth of Damascus, that's uh, Syria, the spoil of Samaria, that's the northern, king, the northern kingdom of Israel, will be carried away before the king of Assyria. So Israel... And Syria were looking to take away the house of David from Judah to, so that they together could go against Assyria. And the prophecy of Meher Shalal Hashbaz is there to say that before that happens, they're going to come in quickly and they will take the spoil. They will become prey. And what we're seeing here in chapter 9 is the outworking of that. That northern kingdom of Israel is the land that great darkness has come upon it. And we saw in the beginning of chapter 9 that this dark land would eventually receive light. Because the northern part of Israel is where Jesus came to. It's where he did his ministry. Galilee, Capernaum, this, you know, this, this whole kind of area. The land of Nathali and Zebulun. And... Uh, but before that light can come, the darkness is going to become ever darker. And last time we were in verses 8 through 17, and we saw the first two of four little oracles that are being given here of the judgment of the darkness coming upon the northern kingdom of Israel at the hands of Assyria. This exact prophecy, uh, the specific prophecy of the general prophecy that was given a little earlier with uh, the birth of Meher Shalal Hashbaz. Okay, so we saw the first two last time, and these are all linked together um, by a refrain from uh, chapter 5 and, and verse 25, where we were told that the anger of Yahweh was kindled, and he stretched out his hand against them, and he struck them. That was in our foundation section, chapter 5, that, that God's wrath was kindled because of their sin, and he stretched out his hand, not to hold them, not to touch them, but to strike them, to punch them, if you like. And that is the, uh, the foundation for this section, because each of those oracles that we saw last time ended with the phrase, and you'll see it in, for example, chapter 9, verse 12, for all this his anger has not turned away still, and his hand is stretched out still. So, Oracle number one, God's going to bring in judgment. Is that the wrath of God done? Nope, his anger's still there and his hand is still stretching out. So oracle number two we had. And then was that enough? No, it says at the end of verse 17 again, for all his anger has not turned away and his hand has stretched out still. And there are two more of these oracles and that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. The first one starts in verse 18. And... It goes through to the end of the chapter, and the fourth one starts in chapter 10 and verse 1 and goes through to verse 4. And so these are the last two of the four oracles. So that's our context and our background. This is the judgment of Israel at the hand of Assyria, the judgment of the northern kingdom, as was promised through Meher Shalal Hashbaz. Okay? So, verse 18. For wickedness burns like a fire. 
It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. I think like 10 years ago, these words would have meant not quite as much to me as they do having lived in California for five and six years. And we live in the midst of a region that is often devastated by forest fires. We saw this last year just some of the worst for a long time. Um, a couple of years ago, we had uh, the forest fires and the Verdugos that stretched down to about one mile, well, one and a half miles from our home. And um, we're very aware of what this now looks like. And, and I want us to kind of, you know, to, to take that knowledge that we have and see what he's saying here. He's saying that their wickedness, the sin that they have, burns like a fire. And it starts here with consuming briars and thorns. Now, we've had a lot of rain this year. And if you're not familiar with forest fires and you're not familiar with the, the geography of this kind of dry land, you think, well, lots of rain, that's good. We're not going to have, that's going to be better for the fires, is it not? No, the answer is the opposite. I have, as I run in the Dividugos and I go off into Griffith Park to run, I have never seen so much grass and, you know, plant life as I've seen. I mean, not, not just a little bit more, but more than double what I've ever seen before in the years that I've lived here. We're just overrun with grasses and what have you. And as now, the rains have probably, probably now, as we come into June, have you know, we had a bit of rain on Friday, but I think we're pretty much done now. We're kind of getting to the summer months. All that grass is going to get drier and drier and drier. And it's just going to mean the potential for fires becomes greater. Because what happens is that the grasses, and here in the text, the briars and the thorns, those, those dry, grassy, small scale things can take, uh, can take light, as it were, and the fire can go. And so wickedness burns up and it destroys. It, it, it's self-destroying. We destroy ourselves with our own sin. Briars and thickets um, elsewhere in chapter 27 and verse 4 seems to... I think there's a suggestion here that retrospectively looking back that this may well be a reference to just the common people. Just, you know, grasses, thorns, thickets, just little bits of, of, of plant life that's not so important and that is easily burnt up. And what happens is that sin can come in and just devastate people and spread and consume, and their own sin destroys them. But then what happens, and this is what we're concerned about, is that when we have our forest fires, those forest fires don't start with someone putting a match next to a big tree. What happens is that these thorns, these thickets, these briars, that they catch light, these grasses catch light, and the fire starts to rage, and then the trees can get caught. And then the tree spreads the tree, and then it gets consumed. And that's the picture being painted here. It kindles the thickets of the forest. So we go from the small stuff to the big stuff. And sin spreads. Now, there's two key things here about sin that we see. Number one is simply the fact that sin is self-destructive. That our sin destroys us. We do these things and in itself we, we, we are punished in the very act of doing sin. People, you say, well, they do sin because it's pleasurable. Well, of, of course that's true. But the very act of that pleasure is separating them from God. 
They're harming themselves even in the time when they don't realize or recognize that. And so as these things are consumed by fire, so we are consumed by our wickedness. But I think that the other thing to note here is how we go from these uh, briars and thickets through to the, uh, sorry, let me say that again more accurately, the briars and thorns through to the thickets of the forest. We go from the small to the large. And I think that uh, uh, chapter 10, uh, a little bit later on here, there seems to be a suggestion. Um, look at, we're so close to it, might as well look. Chapter 10, verse 34. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. As we'll see when we get to that context, it seems to imply that the leaders will fall and the nation will fall with it. It seems to be that these big trees, in contrast to the common people being like briars, are the leaders. And so sin spreads through the people and then into the leadership, and the whole of the nation is affected. And so we see the spread of sin, and we see the destruction of sin. Of sin. And, and the seeing of it is clearly seen in the end of verse 18. They roll upward in a column of smoke. And when you have these fires, you may not be able to see from a distance the fire itself, but the smoke goes up for all to see. The sin that has invaded the church through its rejection of God's word throughout this land, throughout the world, puts up pillars of smoke for the whole world to see. They destroy themselves, they destroy their faith, the faith of others, it consumes all, and they're completely oblivious to it. But yet, the smoke is there to see. Verse 19, in contrast, is fascinating. Through the wrath of Yahweh of hosts, the land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. It's very interesting that in the midst of this analogy of fire, if you missed out the first phrase, you miss out through the wrath of the Yahweh of hosts, you then come to the next part, the land is scorched, people are like fuel for the fire, and it just continues this analogy. The analogy of sin, destroying people, being self-destructive, and yet in the midst of it, there's the wrath of God. Through the wrath of God. Now, I want us to understand here, this is another one of those multiple pictures we see in the prophets of where things that come from human choice and things that come from the hand of God are not distinguished by scripture as we seek to distinguish them. We, 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 we as Christians, we argue relentlessly, well, is that the choice of man or did God decree that? And the Bible again and again gives the answer, both. And here it is here. Sin is naturally self-destructive. It spreads. These, these nations, Syria and Israel, have said, well, we're going to try and take down Assyria, and we're going to take down Judah so we can get to Assyria, and Judah hasn't played ball, and so Assyria comes in and destroys them, and that is the fruit of their wickedness in them trying to take down the house of Judah. It's a direct result of their wickedness, and yet it's the wrath of God, and yet it's God's judgment upon them. It's not one or the other. You don't have to choose. And if you become one of these Christians who goes through your Christian existence saying, well, do I have the free will to do this or has God decreed this? You're just going to waste your life running around like a dog chasing its tail. 
The answer is both. You get to choose. You get to decide. And you're responsible for your decisions. And God is sovereign and decrees all things. Don't fight it. Don't struggle with it. Just embrace it. God's wrath is the fire and their wickedness is the fire. God, through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, remember that phrase again? We saw that in verse 13. They did not inquire of Yahweh of hosts. It speaks of his might, of his power, of his sovereignty. And so the land is scorched. They, because of their wickedness, destroy themselves and God's hand is upon them and his judgment is on them and so the land becomes scorched and the people are like fuel for the fire no one spares another and here we see how this this self-destructiveness that they because of their sin harm each other as is often said an eye for an eye and we all go blind that's how it works right if, if someone takes out your eye and you respond by taking out their eye, oh, and you took out my, my friend's eye, so I'll take out your eye, you took my cousin's eye, and, you know, everybody ends up blind. And this is the nature of sin, is, is that they're, they're there reacting to each other, and they're all destroying each other with their sin against each other. And so each one destroys the other, and yet God's hand is sovereignly over it all. And he is bringing judgment against them through their own hand and through the hand of the Gentile nation that we're seeing here, Assyria. And so up to this point with the previous oracles, the, the, the destruction from the hand of Assyria has been more clear. And now we're seeing them destroying one another. They, um, verse ni uh, 19 comes into verse 20 now, and this is... Uh, spelled out for us more clearly they slice meat on the right but are hungry they devour on the left but they are not satisfied each devours the flesh of his own arm Manasseh devours Ephraim and Ephraim devours Manasseh and they're together they are against Judah all right let's let's try and understand this okay Firstly, some have taken this very literally and have said that, you know, in this time of destruction, there is uh, cannibalism in the land because there's a famine that comes in. That would not be unheard of, but I don't think there's any other support for that at this time in Bible uh, history, and I don't think that's what's being spoken of. Isaiah, as I noted from the very first chapter, has been using the concept of food and eating as an analogy from the very beginning. It was promised that if they were obedient to God, that they would, they would have the blessings and they would eat from the fruit of the land. But if they rebelled against God, not only would they not be in the land, but they would be devoured. And so the idea in the analogy of eating, as Isaiah presents it, is you either eat the blessings that you get through obedience, or you are eaten as a judgment against your disobedience. And that is the theme that's being picked up again here, but it's being pictured because no one is sparing one another. It's being pictured as cannibalism, that the destruction, them being devoured, is being done by themselves. There is a self-devouring. So the cannibalism here is, is figurative of the fact that the, the, the destruction that was promised to them 
The destruction that was promised to them if they didn't eat from the fruit of the land, they didn't receive the blessings of God, the destruction that was coming is actually to some degree coming from their own hands, one to another. We're talking essentially of a civil war of kinds here. And the left and the right here, I think, is just simply talking about uh, uh, the sense of totality. Slicing meat on the right, they're still hungry. They're devouring on the left, and they're not satisfied. And, And here we see again the consuming nature of sin. Sin is never satisfied. Sin is never satisfied. You cannot treat yourself to sin as a one-off. Just as an alcoholic, you know, someone who struggles with alcoholism isn't going to have one drink to celebrate and then say, well, I shouldn't really drink alcohol. I'll have a drink for my birthday and I won't touch it for the rest of the year. It doesn't work that way. Some people struggle with some things, some struggle with others. You could lock me in a brewery and I'd come out sober in a year. It's not my thing. Put me in a chocolate factory, I'd come out 400 pounds. And sin is the thing that we can't resist. They, they are there with their wickedness harming one another, but they're never satisfied. They, they say, I'm angry with you and I'm going to take you down. And they take them down and is their anger gone? No. This is the, this is the stupidity of revenge and retaliation in that retaliation never satisfies a person. We think, well, if I can just get back at this person, I'll be satisfied. But what you fail to realize is that the problem is not what they've done. The problem in that moment is your heart and how you're responding. And retaliation doesn't deal with that problem. It feeds it. And so there they are, destroying one another on the left, destroying one another on the right, consuming each other, and yet they're never satisfied. Their wickedness never comes to an end. They say, well, I'm gonna de- I've got a problem with you, and I'm going to deal with you, and then all they're doing is then dealing with somebody else. Let, let me just say this really clearly, that interpersonal harm whether it's anger as is typically the case or resentment or whatever other form that you would like to have, interpersonal harm never gets satisfied. It never comes to an end. You want to hurt someone and you hurt them and you've just fueled the, the, the part within your sinful nature that hurts other people. And the next time there's a conflict, you'll hurt that person and the next person, and the next person. The problem is within. And so they are consuming and eating one another, and they're not satisfied. And here they are. And what's the context here? The context here is Assyria destroying them. And what are they doing in the midst of Assyria's attack? They're destroying each other. They're cutting off their nose to spite their face. They're harming themselves when the one time they should be united... And I tell you, I see this in um, Christian relationships, marriages, friendships, what have you, that the enemy comes in and he's our enemy and he seeks to destroy us. And what do we do? We destroy each other. Isn't that just typical? And here is the enemy trying to bring about harm to us and we're there saying, yeah, sure, we'll give you a hand. Let's just join in. And I think that there is, a, there is a picture here in Israel destroying itself while under attack from Assyria 
that is something that we perhaps on a personal level have some experience of. At some point, all of us maybe, in some form of relationship in our lives. And so Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Why are these two specifically mentioned? Well, because of all the tribes. All the tribes, tribe of Levi, tribe of uh, Naphtali and Zebulun that we've seen recently. All of these tribes are of Judah. They're the sons of Jacob. And one of those sons, Joseph, the, the tribal portioning allowed for two of Joseph's sons. So rather than Joseph getting a portion, Manasseh and Ephraim, his sons, got a portion each. And that's sometimes why you see the division is not looking quite the same. So why are they mentioned in this context? The idea is that those two are the most closely related. They are the generationally the closest, and therefore they are a picture of those who are close by blood, those who should be united, being against each other. They are destroying each other. And yet, they agree on one thing. What do they agree on? Together, they are against Judah. My friends, what is it? My, my enemy's enemy is my friend? Or is it my friend's friend my enemy? I'm going to get myself muddled up here entirely not. But the example of it is the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Pharisees and Sadducees hated each other. And if you read your New Testament, you wouldn't have a clue about that. They seem like best buddies. Why? Because every time we come across them, they're coming to attack Jesus. They're coming to get to Jesus. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came against Jesus. And they asked him this question to try and trick him. But they spent most of their time arguing with each other. But they found something they had in common. They hated Jesus more than they hated each other. And so you have this bizarre picture that Isaiah is painting here. Okay? So understand this. Here's the northern kingdom of Israel. Assyria is coming down and destroying them. As Assyria comes and attacks them, they're destroying each other. And the one thing they agree on is that they want to go and destroy Judah. Can you see how sin and wickedness just consumes? No logic, just wildfire spreading and destroying. And by the way, today you can see that in the so many Arab or Muslim nations that, you know, I mean, you get civil wars going on in some of these Muslim nations where they can't agree with each other and they argue and they fight to the death over interpretations of the Quran. But they all know that they hate Israel. And they come together and they unite. And this is what's happening here. They, there's uniting against Judah, against Jerusalem. And that's exactly what's being seen. And so there's this judgment now that's coming, that having looked in the previous oracles more at the effect of Assyria, we've seen here now more the effect of uh, their own hands in destroying them. And by the way, if you want to see that in practice, the best part of Scripture to look at is Second Kings, and Second Kings in chapter 15. In 2 Kings and 15, in verse 8 and following, you see the succession of kings. And there are, leading up to this, there are six kings in quick succession. Five of them came to the throne through assassination. Only one of them inherited the throne. This is Israel, this is Israel just destroying itself. And uh, so, yeah, 2 Kings 15 is where you will see that. That then leads us to our fourth and final oracle in chapter 10 and verse 1. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees 
and the writers who keep on writing oppression. Other versions translate this differently, but I like the ESV here because it, it, it keeps some of the poetry of the original. The ones, those who decree, writing decrees, the, the verb and the noun are related words. It would be like saying that they, they are legislating legislation or something like that, you know. It's a, the same verb and noun, the cognates coming together. That's that kind of expression. And so it, there is a woe, there is a warning. And again, this is links to the, the woes and therefores that we've already seen in chapter 5 at the foundation of this section. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, the writers who keep writing oppression. There are those who are making laws and decrees and those who are writing them into law. So someone's saying, hey, we need to have this law. And then others are saying, right, we'll make that happen. And so there are these two groups who between them come and make laws. Now, I'm not as familiar with the politics of this country and how it works as, as maybe I ought to be, but you can probably fill in the gaps here, whether it's Congress, senators, judges, what have you. But we're talking about those who essentially propose laws, get them passed, and get them put into law. And there is a woe to them. If they write decrees that are unjust, if they make laws that oppress and notice here what is being done by these laws. To turn aside the needy from justice, to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil, that they may make the fatherless their prey. Notice the use of the two words here, spoil and prey. That is what Meher Shalal Hashbaz means. Speed the spoil, hasten the prey. In other words, we've been seeing in the first two oracles the effect of Assyria bringing darkness to the land. We've now, with Oracle 3, started to shift in how they've harmed themselves with their own sin. And now we're seeing that their very own laws are bringing about that they are pursuing spoil. They are pursuing prey. And they have now, under the hands of Assyria, become spoil and prey. Can you see that link with those words? As to Assyria, they have become the spoil, they have become the prey. But they were making spoil and prey out of the poor, of the widows and the orphans. Three categories of people that are continuously, Old and New Testament, close to God's heart. Now I don't, again, I never preach politics from a pulpit. We preach Bible and not politics. But I think that those who... Um, those who are typically on the political side that people in churches tend to be on need to just be careful that we don't overstep the lines and we start to go uh, against the poor and against the needy, against the widow and against the orphan. There has got to be a place. Now, we, you know, politically, people can debate to the end whether that's the role of the, the state, whether that's the role of the, the church, whether that's the role of individuals and you can have those discussions and I won't be having them from the pulpit. My point is simply to say to you that the nation of Israel made laws that took advantage of the poor, that took advantage of the widows, and took advantages of orphans. They didn't just not put things in their favor, but they managed to make, take advantage of them. And I tell you, a lot of people don't know what it's like to go through life struggling on the brink of poverty. And they don't notice these kind of things. But I tell you what, every time I see these 
companies offering people their, their wages ahead of time with a nice hefty interest rate. I'm seeing that there are people who are making a living out of the poor. And I don't know what the answers are. I honestly, I don't know. I don't know how we resolve these things and what have you. I don't know the political answers. But all I know is this, that biblically it's abundantly clear that God is, his heart goes out to the poor. He goes out to the widows and he goes out to the orphans. And our lives have got to mirror that. We have got to, at the very least, care. We might deal with that empathy practically in different ways. Some of us may feel that things need to be done on a state level. Some may feel that we just do with those things that charity begins at home. Some may feel that's what we work through the church. And gosh, we have to do it as a church. And I think we do it very well here. But nevertheless, we have got to care and we've got to be for the poor, for the widow and for the orphan. And... That isn't to say that we disregard scripture where it speaks about those who won't work, neither shall they eat. That isn't to say that we don't, um, that we uh, pander to human irresponsibility, that others should pay for the laziness of, of those who won't uh, do their share. That's not to say that at all. But it is to say that in society, no matter how much people do, no matter how much they try, no matter how much people try and live as they should, there will always be poor, there will always be widows, and there will always be orphans, and we must always care. That's pretty basic, I think. Now, as we look at this, we see the woes going to those who, who write laws to take advantage of such people. And so it is that the lawmakers of Israel who take an advantage of the weak, they have now become the weak. Now this links very much to the end of oracle number two that we saw last time where we're told that the, um, verse 17 therefore of, of chapter 9, therefore the Lord does not rejoice over their young men. He has no compassion on the fatherless and the widows for everyone is godless and an evildoer and every mouth speaks folly. Can you just see the, the irony here in that the widow, the poor, and the orphan are ungodly. And so God says, I'm not going to have compassion on you, poor. I'm not going to have compassion on you, orphans and widows. Because of your ungodliness, I'm going to bring judgment against you. And so judgment comes against them. It comes against them at the hands of the rulers. And then what does God do to the rulers? You've been unfair and unjust to the poor and the widows and the orphans. I'm going to bring judgment against you. Again, can you see how human responsibility and God's sovereignty come together here? That God says there's no compassion for these people because they're evil. And so God allows judgment to come against them. But the very ones who bring judgment are going to be judged for bringing judgment. We're going to see that on an even bigger scale in a moment. And so the point as we shift from, chap uh, from chapter 10 verse 2 to chapter 10 verse 3 is simply this. That the ones who, who pursued the weak for spoil and prey have now become the spoil and prey. And so these oracles end with these three rhetorical questions which 
as their word did act as a judgment against these people, against the nation of Israel, the kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel. What will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? So the questions are firstly, what will you do on that day? There you are with your plan and you're doing this and that. And you're pursuing your wickedness and you're living your life and you're ungodly. And now the day of judgment comes. Now what are you going to do? Sin makes sense in the moment. Of course it does. It always does. Do you know, I remember as a, as a teenager listening to a, a, a contemporary Christian artist called Steve Taylor, who's still making music now, I believe, um, and he wrote a song long ago called Sin for a Season. Just about this whole idea that we'll, we'll just sin for a little while. We'll have a little period of, uh, well, I'll, I'll sin for a bit. But A, sin consumes. It spreads like wildfire. And B, what then happens on the day of judgment? What happens when judgment comes? And the two words here, Punishment and ruin speak of the sentence and then subsequently the execution of that sentence. There's a day in which God passes judgment and a day in which that judgment comes to pass, if you want to look at it another way. What's going to happen then? Where do these decisions leave you? More specifically, the second question says, to whom will you flee? To whom will you flee? Assyria is attacking you from the north, so who can you go to? Well, you could go to Judah, but you tried to destroy Judah, didn't you? Judah's now your enemy. And so there's nowhere left to flee. And fourthly, where will you leave your wealth? Compare that with the reference to spoil. There they were, getting their spoil from the fatherless, from the widows, from the orphans. There's two ways of making money, isn't there? You can make large amounts of money from a few people, or you can, by taking a large, you can make money by taking large amounts from a few people, or you can make money by taking tiny amounts from a large number of people. And they made their money from the poor. They made their money from the widows and the orphans. Where are you going to hide it now? What good is your money when a nation comes in and tears down, destroys your home? destroys everything you have. Where do you put your funds, your spoil? It made so much sense at the time to feather your own nest, but what do you do now? And so verse 4 says, nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. That's the answer to the questions. What do you do? Where do you hide? Where do you put your stuff? And the answer is, you're either going to be a prisoner or you're going to be dead. These things become unimportant. You can see, and again, I love seeing this. I, love, I see more and more and more just how much of the New Testament really is saying nothing new, but just teaching the old. When Jesus says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Can you not see that right here? Here they were, scheming, benefiting, destroying and devouring one another. 
And by the way, I wonder if when Paul references devouring one another in Galatians, whether he's thinking of this passage here as well, but that's perhaps a, a bit of homework for you. But when, when, you, when you consider they're doing this to gain, and now they have nothing, they've, 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 they've made enemies of, of themselves with God. And everything that they worked for and everything they had is all gone. It's all worthless. This is what we were talking about this morning. You can waste your whole life feathering your nest, making your life better, becoming more wealthy, becoming more comfortable, making your life better in whatever way appeals to you. And it is literally a waste. And again... As I said last time, we've got to be careful not to over-apply this text to us. This is talking to people who were predominantly unbelievers. This is people on whom the wrath of God was upon them. And we as Christians are just not in that situation. The wrath of God was poured out on Christ for our sin, and we stand forgiven. But nonetheless, the principle is surely the same, in that we can waste our lives pursuing things that we will have no use of on the day of judgment, that will be of no benefit to us. I mean, honestly... None of us are so stupid as to think, you know, on the stand of the day of judgment, and he said, well, but we made lots of money, God. Or we, we accomplished this, I got this award, I, I, I did this, I, I, I was the first to do that, I was the best at doing this. When all we need to hear on that day is well done, good and faithful servant. And so... They end up amongst the prisoners and they end up amongst the slain. The point is that there's no other options to them. The answers to the questions of verse 3 is that that's, that's all they have, the options of being a prisoner or being dead. And then finally, we end with that refrain for the fourth time. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. He pours out his wrath again and again and again. And his wrath is never quenched. Do you see again that in chapter, uh, in chapter 9, verses 18 and 19? Sin is a fire that just keeps spreading and spreading and it just keeps consuming everything until there's nothing left to consume. Sin is this, is this hunger that, that causes us to devour each other and yet it's never satisfied. And the wrath of God stands alongside that. The wrath of God burns up until everything is gone. The wrath of God continues until everything is gone. The wrath of God is never satisfied in, in, the, in, in the sense of being poured out on man here. The wrath of God only finds its satisfaction in Jesus Christ. It's only in the death of Christ that the wrath of God comes to an end. You know, you'd think, here are these four oracles... Is the wrath of God done yet? No, there's more. Next one. Wrath of God done yet? No, there's more. And you'd think by the end of number four, you'd say, and then God was done. But it ends with the same refrain. Because there is no satisfying of the wrath of God any more than there is a satisfying of sin. Christ alone is the one who can bring to an end the wrath of God. Now, as we've seen a few times in this passage, this balance between human responsibility and God's sovereignty, we see them uh, 
them judging and being judged. We see God saying, I'm going to judge you, the widow, widows and the orphans. I'm going to judge you for your sin. The widows and the orphans are judged by the unjust laws. And then the ones who pass the unjust laws are judged for passing unjust laws. And what we often see here is that this happens with nations. And that's where we're going with this next. The darkness here in these verses just gets darker and darker. And God, here as elsewhere in Isaiah, he uses Gentile nations to judge Israel. And God, here in these four oracles, is using Assyria to judge Israel. What do you think is going to happen next? God's going to judge Assyria for harming Israel. Now, if you're thinking, if you're separating these things out, if you're thinking, you know, human responsibility, God's sovereignty, this is going to be frustrating and confusing. But this is how it is. And it's not just here, it is routinely. You see this throughout Isaiah, you see it with Jeremiah, you see it in the prophets. This is what happens. is that God says, Israel, I'm going to judge you. Here's how I'm going to judge you. I'm going to use this Gentile nation to judge you. And the Gentile nation comes in, and then God says, hey, Gentile nation, you touched my beloved. I'm going to judge you. It's just it's so commonplace. And... That's what's going to happen, and we're going to see in verse 5 next time, Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. And we're going to see this judgment coming. And with that, we're going to see another common theme that comes in these kind of circumstances, which is as God judges Gentile nation, uh, Israel through Gentile nations, we always see the surviving of the remnant. We always see the surviving of the remnant. And so here's what happens. Israel is wicked, and so the Gentile nation comes in and destroys Israel, attacks Israel, judges Israel. And then God says, you've touched my beloved. And what they've done in, in, the, in the suffering and the judgment of Israel, the remnant are going to survive, and they will be punished for what they've done to that remnant. And so the indestructibility of Israel as a nation, the fact that whatever happens, there will always be a remnant that will survive, that indestructibility of Israel is often connected with the punishment of the Gentile nation that's been used to in turn punish the Jews. Okay? So let me say that again so you understand it. Okay? These three things are often linked together. That God judges Israel with Gentile nations. That Gentile nations are then judged by God for what they've done to Israel. And that the concept of there being a surviving remnant of true believers is connected with that as well. And we're going to see that starting next time. Now that Israel has been judged by Assyria... Starting in chapter 10 and verse 5, Assyria is going to be judged for what they've done to Israel. And in that, as we go through the rest of chapter 10, we're going to see that a remnant remains. And so we go from Meher Shalal Hashbaz, the spoil and the prey, to Shi'er Yashub, the remnant will remain. And hopefully we'll see how those two sons and their names are connected together and how God deals with Israel. Israel sins, 
They take advantage of, of, the, of the weak and the poor. They devour themselves. They're devoured by another nation. And they become the spoil. They become the prey. They preyed on others. They become the prey. And God judges them. Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And then, through that judgment, God judges the Gentile nation that has been used in accordance with Genesis 12, and we'll talk about that next time. And the remnant survives, and the remnant remains. And that takes us on to Shia Yashub, and that's where we'll pick up next time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for, uh, Lord, the fact that this wrath that we so clearly see before us your anger against sin. Lord, we thank you that that wrath has been appeased. That that wrath was poured on Christ in our place, in our stead. Lord, on the one hand, we see these passages and we know that they don't apply to us. That your wrath is no longer upon us and we thank you. We thank you dearly for that. But on the other hand, Lord, we see the rightful righteous, godly response to sin. May we hate sin in us as much as you hate sin in us. May we see that that death of Christ is not just an aversion of the wrath that was rightly ours, but it is the empowerment to live a life apart from that sin. And I pray that we would do that, Lord. That we would live lives that are pleasing to you. That we would turn from our sin and that we will bring glory to your holy name. Amen.